Thanks for listening to the Waterstone Community Church Podcast. Welcome to the Great Prayers of the Bible series. Our calling is to advance God's kingdom to God's glory. We are a growing movement of transformed people reshaping the culture to reflect God's heart. To learn more, please visit waterstonechurch.org. Let's pray one more time. Could we please? Father, we uh, gather together to to worship you, and part of our worship of you is to, to listen and to wrestle with your word, and to do that in a way where we're open to it changing us and transforming us and reshaping us into the kind of people you want us to be. We pray that that would happen this morning uh, as we begin to, to wrestle with this whole issue of prayer and how we become people of prayer. So we pray that that would happen this morning by the power of your spirit and that it would happen to the glory of your name. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Uh, in her book, Holy the Firm, Annie Dillard writes about visiting a little church that has about 20 uh, people in it. Um, she, she says this, the minister is a congregationalist and wears a white shirt. The man knows God. Once in the middle of a long pastoral prayer of intercession for the whole world, for the gift of wisdom to its leaders for hope and mercy, to the grieving and pain, comfort to the oppressed and God's grace to all. In the middle of this, he stopped and he burst out. Lord, we bring you these same petitions every week. After a shocked pause, he continued reading the prayer. She notes, because of this, I like him very much. Raises the question, doesn't it? Does, uh, does prayer really make a difference? Does it matter if we pray or how we pray? We're beginning a series this morning to help us wrestle with that. Uh, entitled The Great Prayers of the Bible. We'll be looking at different prayers, primarily from the Old Testament. And hopefully as we do that, we will learn to pray better. I thought this morning, though, to kind of get us started on this series, it would be perhaps helpful to make some very simple but I think profound comments about the nature of prayer, kind of observations. They actually come from a man named Karl Barth, who was uh, a theologian, uh, and they come from his book entitled Prayer. And there's just two things that I think... uh, we should mention that he mentions. The first is this. Prayer is asking. Prayer is asking. Um, He writes this in his book, Prayer. He says, in the first instant, it is an asking, a seeking and a knowing directed towards God, a wishing, a desiring, a requesting presented to God. The person who really prays comes to God and approaches and speaks to him because they seek something of God, because they desire and expect something, because they hope to receive something which they need, something which they don't not, do not hope to receive from anyone else, but do definitely hope to receive from God. They cannot come before God with their petition without also worshiping God, without giving him praise and thanksgiving, and without spreading out before him their own wretchedness. But it is the fact that they come before God with their petition which makes them a praying person. 
Other theories of prayer may be richly and profoundly thought out and may sound very well, but they all suffer from a certain artificiality because they miss this simple and concrete fact. Losing themselves in the heights and depths where there is no place for one who really prays, who is simply making a request. Prayer is asking. Luke chapter 11, Jesus says, pray, ask, and it will be given to you. Uh, At its fundamental core, prayer is about coming before God and making uh, a a request. The second thing, uh, and you can never forget this, is that not only is prayer asking, but God listens. Simple enough. Let's listen to Bart again for a moment. God is not deaf, but listens. More than that, he acts. God does not act in the same way whether we pray or not. Don't miss that, right? God does not act in the same way whether we pray or not, right? Prayer exerts an influence upon God's action, even upon his existence. But one thing is beyond doubt. It is the answer that God gives. Our prayers are weak and poor. Nevertheless, what matters is not that our prayers be forceful, but that God listens to them. That is why we pray. I mean, that is a profound thing. I mean, God has given to us just a bit of omnipotence, right? Someone has said that prayer moves the hand that moves the world. And it's a little trite and cliche, but it's also just true. That's the amazing, I mean, the fact that God grants us prayer is just an amazing thing. He gives humans agency. We can, through our prayers, impact what's going to happen. Incredible, incredible thing. So his point, bottom line, is prayer makes a difference. My question then is, well, what kind of prayer makes a difference? And this morning, we're going to begin to explore that by looking at a conversation that a man named Abraham has with God. You'll remember Abraham. Uh, um, Isaiah 41 tells us that he was the friend of God. He actually has a bit of a conversational relationship with God, which is unusual in the Old Testament. Uh, God appears to him and calls him from a place called the Ur of the Chaldees and and bids him to move to the promised land. And over the course of time, he he does. And and you'll remember that Abraham is the bearer of the, the promise, of the blessing for the world, that God is going to bless the world through him. And thus he has this huge responsibility to, to be a model of what it looks like to live in God's ways on the earth. And as you explore the story of Abraham in Genesis 12 through 23, you discover it's really a story about a man of faith. Abraham is an example of faithness. Now, he is not perfect. He's a bit of a scoundrel. <laughs> he is pretty broken. Uh, at one point, he agrees to give his wife to Pharaoh just to protect his own skin. I mean, he's not this pristine guy. He's broken like the rest of us. But there's a lot to learn from Abraham. Um, 
one piece of background, when Abraham moves from Ur of the Chaldees to the promised land, he takes with him his nephew Lot. And uh, once they get into the land of the promised land, both Abraham and Lot, they have huge herds and they begin to grow and, and they're taxing the resources of the land. So Abraham goes to Lot and says, look, um, we need to split up. If you want the valley, go to the valley. If you want the mountains, go to the mountains. It's your choice. And Lot picks to go into the valley because it's lush and it's green and there's cities there. And he moves into a city. We have a map here. Abraham ends up here by Mamre. This is actually the Dead Sea. It wasn't like that at that moment in time. We'll see why it ends up as the Dead Sea. And we think that Lot is down here in the southern part of the Dead Sea in these cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the background you need to understand. Um, Let's pick up the story, uh, chapter 18, verse 16. You'll remember that three people, if you're familiar with the story, have shown up on Abraham's door. And Abraham extends to them hospitality. And over the course of feeding them, he begins to realize that these aren't just any three people. Two of them are angels, and one of them is God. It's a theophany. God appears to him. They have finished the meal. They, uh, uh, the three visitors are beginning to, to, to leave. They, they go to this bluff where they're looking down into the valley of the De- Dead Sea, uh, Kafar Baruka by by tradition is where they stood, where you can look over. The breeze is blowing, and uh, interesting thing happens. God begins to have a conversation, first of all, with himself. Look at the text. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, um, God here is in kind of a little bit of a dilemma. And the dilemma is going to be caused on the one hand by who Abraham is and his calling. And on the other hand, that God is uh, going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of their wickedness. And, And you'll see the tension of the dilemma. Anyway, then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all the nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I've chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. That's Abraham's call to model what it looks like to follow after God in this culture and this world. Um, Keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. These two words, right and just, are really important. Abraham's family is to be the model of what it means to be right and just. These are the the two words we've hit over and over and over again in the Old Testament when we talk about justice. It's the word, well, let's look at them. The word for right is the word zadikah, and it means doing right, means putting all right, uh, right, all relationships in life. It, It is at its heart social or relational. It refers to day, today living in which a person conducts all relationships in the family and society with fairness and generosity and, and equity. So Abraham is supposed to teach his kids to live that way. And then the word for just is the word mishpat. Now this word uh, appears over 200 times in the Old Testament. It is the heart of what we think of when we think about justice. 
And it, it means to treat people equitably or to give people their rights. It means punishing wrongdoers, but it also means caring for the victims of unjust treatment. And oftentimes in the Old Testament, you'll see these two words linked together, zadikah and, and, uh, and mishpat, uh, righteous and justice. And it has this notion of community justice, or some people describe it as social justice, but it's this notion of living out justice and righteousness in the context of the community. You say, okay, well, why is that a problem? That's God's calling. Well, here's the problem. Sodom and Gomorrah is, is, is the problem, right? God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because they are wicked. And if you read in the next chapter, you'll remember how the story goes. The two angels go into to the town of Sodom. They're going to stay in the square. Lot, Abraham's nephew, discovers them and, and gives them hospitality, takes them home. He doesn't want them staying in the square. He feeds them. As it gets dark, the men of the city come and they want these these guys, these two angels, they don't know that they're angels because they want to abuse them. They want to rape them. So when we think of Sodom and Gomorrah, we think, yeah, it's, it's destroyed because of the sin of homosexuality. And that's part of it. That's part of what's going on, their immorality. Just to note, homosexual behavior is a sin. It is no worse sin than any other kind of sexual immorality, sex outside the context of heterosexual marriage. Not worse than any of that. But we gravitate to that's the core issue here. And it's wicked, it's the depth of their sin, but the breadth of their wickedness is much greater than that. In fact, Sodom and Gomorrah become kind of a bit of an archetype for the Canaanites and their wickedness. And that's part of what's going on in this story. But I want you to understand the nature of their wickedness. See, you can go to Ezekiel chapter 16. And Ezekiel gives us some insight, and this may shock you a little bit because we don't think of this. This, God is saying, now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. He's comparing Sodom to Israel, that they're both being wicked. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, as you have seen. Makes you a little nervous? Should make you a little nervous. <laughs> so, so it's not just the issue uh, of immorality that's going on. Uh, the wickedness uh, of Sodom and Gomorrah is, is much broader than that. Say, so, okay, Nick, but I, I don't understand. What's, what's the dilemma between Abraham and the city? Well, God is going to destroy the, the city of Sodom and Gomorrah wipe it out. In fact, he's going out to, to, it says in the text, well, let's look at the text, chapter 18, verse 20 and 21. He said, the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down to see if what, I, what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. This word for outcry is the Hebrew word zakah. And it's a, a, a technical uh, a technical legal term that is used to describe the outcry or the scream of those who are being oppressed and abused. It's the same word that is used in Exodus chapter 2 when the people of Israel are under the, the, the boot of Pharaoh and are crying out because of their, their enslavement. 
And that outcry has reached God. So he's coming down to check it out, to, to make sure, to legitimize what he's about to do. But here's the problem. Abraham is to be teaching what it means to be right and just. And here God is destroying the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the question comes is, God, if you're right and just, and all that entails of treating, te- treating people equitably, how can you destroy this city? That brings into question whether you're really right and just. And if I, if Abraham is supposed to be the person who's teaching the world what it means to right and just, then that needs to reflect who God is. And now the question is, God, are you really that? Are you just? If you're going to destroy the city. So we get this conversation between God and Abraham. Uh, In a sense, it's a prayer. The first half of the prayer is going to be a bit of a confrontation. The second half is going to be a negotiation. Interesting thing as the prayer is set up in verse 22. It says, the men turned away and they went to Sodom. The two angels leave and they go down into the city. The text reads, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Now, if you look in your Bibles, you find a little textual note that says, uh, another manuscript says, not that Abraham remained standing before the Lord, but that the Lord remained standing before Abraham. There are 18 places in the Old Testament where scribes intentionally changed the text because they were uncomfortable with the theological implications of what the text taught. This is one of them. And they changed it because they didn't like the notion that God was standing in front of Abraham. Right? Because if you read it this way and Abraham remains standing before the Lord, you kind of have this picture of, you know, like Abraham's the petitionary going in to see the Godfather to make his request. And maybe the Godfather will grant it or not. You know, he, he, he's, the Godfather obviously has the upper hand. But if you translate it the way it was originally written, that God remains standing before Abraham, that turns the tables. And now God is standing as a petitioner before Abraham. And Abraham seems to have the upper hand. He seems to be the senior one. And you go, wait a second. That, that kind of messes with your whole notion of prayer, doesn't it? But it also fits exactly what happens. That's what we're going to see. This is just amazing to me. Abraham takes God to task. I mean, he is in God's face. Well, look, the confrontation. Then Abraham, and and God says nothing right now, okay? (laughs) Then Abraham approached him and said, hey, first of all, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? He's saying, God, God, that's not ethical, that's not just, you you can't treat the wicked and the righteous, the guilty and and the ones who are living the way you want the same and just destroy them both, that's not ethical. That's not who you are, it's not right and just. Goes on, and this is really interesting. Abraham says, what if there are 50 righteous people in the city, will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? This word for spare is actually the word forgiveness. And he's saying, will you not forgive the wicked? Interesting notion, right? That the well-lived life of the righteous may provide forgiveness for the guilty? Wow. 
Wouldn't you do that, God? For the sake of the righteous, forgive them? And then notice what he says, far be it from you to do such a thing. Now, literally in the Hebrew, uh, um, he, he's saying that that is something that would defy, far be it for you, to, or to def, far be it from you defiling yourself, polluting yourself. What he's saying, he said, God, if you don't do this, you, you, you're going against the very essence of your, who you are, your holiness, destroying the city. If there's righteousness, destroying them along with the wicked would not be holy. It would defile you, it would pollute you, it would dishonor you. You can't do that. To kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Notice the last thing. He says, far be it from you. Will not the judge, which is the same word mishpat in its root, will not the judge, the one who is supposed to hold up justice and righteousness, will not the judge of all the earth do right? You're saying you, at the very essence of you, who you are, you are, are right and just. How can you destroy the city, the righteous and the wicked? He's saying that doesn't, that doesn't measure up. He's <laughs> just taking God to task for being inconsistent with himself. You see, that's the question here. And... Uh, um, it's a legitimate question, right? This passage is setting up a question that we get later on because Sodom and Gomorrah has represented the Canaanites, the archetype. Later on, when they go into the promised land, the Canaanites are destroyed. And one of the questions that you have when you read the Old Testament is how can God do that? How can he just destroy the, these people? So now begins this negotiation uh, between Abraham and God. Let's look at it. Verse 26. The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. God gives in. He says, okay, you're right. If there are 50 righteous people here, I will forgive the city. I will not destroy it. And you think, okay, Abraham got what you wanted. But Abraham's not done. He, <laughs> he wants to bargain. This is like you're in a Middle Eastern bazaar, you know, and you're buying something, and the game is to, 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 to find the lowest price, right? Uh, and the merchant is trying to keep the price high, and you go back and forth. It's fascinating. Then Abraham spoke up. He says, now, now that I've been so bold, now Abraham becomes a little more differential, uh, as to speak to the Lord, through, though I am nothing but, but dust and ashes. <laughs> now he's taking a different stance. What is the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Okay, God, you said 50, but if they're just, if there's five less, would you spare it? What's God supposed to say? No. No. <laughs> he says, okay, five less, 45. Abraham's not done. How about 40? God says, okay. Oh, oh well, don't get, mad, don't get angry. Man. How about 30? How about 20? How about 10? And God, you see, says, he answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. 
When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left. And Abraham returned home. Fascinating, isn't it? It's a negotiation of how Abraham prays and how Abraham converses with the God of the universe. So what happens? Well, we go into chapter 19, and you know the story. The angels go in to the city of Sodom. They get attacked. Uh, a lot, to protect the angels, offers his own daughters, who are both virgins. He says, I'll give my daughters to the men of the city to protect you. And the angels intervene at that point. They bring Lot back into his house, and they blind the men who are trying to rape the angels. And then he tells Lot and his family to flee. Lot tries to get his nephews, uh, I'm sorry, his, his son-in-laws to, to flee with him because his daughters are going to get married. They won't go. They flee out of the city. And, and you'll remember that Lot's wife, they're told not to look back. Lot's wife looks back, and she's turned to stone. And the city is destroyed. You know, interesting uh, comment at the end of chapter 19. This is fascinating to me. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. You get a little insight into Abraham's heart. He goes to bed and he is really concerned about Sodom and Gomorrah and what God is going to do. So when he wakes up in the morning, the very first thing he does is he hightails it to that bluff to look down into the valley to see what happened to the city. And you get the sense that, that Abraham has this incredible compassion even for this wicked, depraved city. He looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, towards the land of the plain, and he saw a dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. It's destroyed. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and he brought out Lot, brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. There are two things to note about this. One, nothing is said about God's righteousness or justice here. And the point being that God was just and righteous in destroying the city. Evidently, there were not 10 righteous people in the city. So God is vindicated in his wrath. And his wrath, even though it's hard, reflected his holiness and his justice. And that's the point of the story. That God is just even in the destruction of the wicked. The other thing you note, though, is that Lot is rescued. But the reason Lot is rescued is not because he is righteous. Now, now Peter tells us that Lot is considered righteous, but not righteous enough to actually move out of the city. <laughs> and it wasn't that kind of righteousness that saved him. In fact, in the next story, he ends up uh, sleeping with his daughters, and it's just a depraved mess, and the Ammonites and the Moabites come up. From them. I mean, Lot is a very mixed character, but he's not saved because of himself. He's saved, the text says, because God remembered Abraham. So the point of the story is to vindicate God's justice, but I think we can go to the story and we can learn some profound things about 
prayer. All right? And I, there, there are four things I'm going to lay out for you about prayer this morning that I think we need to pay attention to. Four lessons. First, we are to pray big. When we come to this story and we look at Abraham having this conversation with God, we just automatically assume that, yeah, Lot, uh, Abraham was praying for Lot. We'll read the story. Abraham is not praying for Lot. His prayer is much bigger than Lot. He's praying for the city. It has to do with the city and urban destruction and the, uh, the whole group of people. Lot isn't even on the table. He's praying big. We need to pray big. Uh, it's not that there's anything with bad with praying small. Uh, you know, it's okay to pray small prayers and personal prayers and little prayers. Those are good things. It's just that we get so wrapped up in that, we never pray big. Uh, um, I was having dinner with a couple the other night, and the gal was concerned about her job, and she says she's been trying to pray about her job, but she feels guilty about praying for her job because she says, you know, there are bigger issues going on in the world. And I told her, you're right, there are bigger issues going on in the world. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't pray for your job. It just means you should pray for those bigger issues. How often do we pray big? I mean, if you look at your prayers for the last few weeks, how many of them have been big prayers? How many of us have prayed for the refugee situation in Syria or around the world? How, how many of us have prayed for, for the families being split up at our own border? That has to be on God's heart. How, how many of us have prayed for, for peace in the Middle East as tensions raise with a whole situation of what's happened with Jerusalem? How many of us have prayed for peace with North Korea and in the Far East? How many of us have even for a moment brought up the situation that's going on in Africa and the war that is tearing that place apart? How many of us have prayed for our leaders that they might act with compassion and justice and wisdom? I mean, how often do we take the newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the other and then go to our knees and pray? <laughs> I mean, think about it. If every prayer you prayed in the last two weeks got answered, would anything have changed in the world other than your grandma getting better? So, well, Nick... Those kind of big prayers, they, they don't make a difference. I beg to differ. If for nothing else, they make a difference in you. Because prayer molds our hearts. To pray big. I love what Walter Brueggemann writes about this. He says, prayer that moves into and against the disorder of the world in passionate intercession is perhaps the deepest, most dangerous, and most compelling prayer in Bible faith. We have so privatized our faith in Jesus that when we pray, we pray small. When God is inviting us to pray big, I mean, he's given us a bit of an omnipotence. And the question is, how are we going to use it? 
No. So pray big, second. Pray with audacity. <laughs> audacity means a, a, a boldness that is willing to take risk. When I think of Abraham, I think of somebody who had chutzpah, right? Incredible self-confidence. I mean, he's, God is standing before him, and he takes God to task. Unbelievable. He, 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 he prays with this incredible boldness. And we think, Nick, are you sure we're supposed to pray that way? I'm absolutely certain we're supposed to pray that way. I think God loves it when we pray with audacity. Do you know why? Because you pray with audacity when you're passionate about what you're praying for. God is tired of boring prayers. He's tired of prayers that we don't really care about. He, he wants us to, to bring a passion to our prayers. And when you're passionate you become bold. I, I mean, think, uh, if your kid is sick and dying, your, your prayers become audacious. Your prayers become passionate. You become bold. Why? Because you want God to intervene. This is not just a meaningless exercise. God wants us to pray with audacity. Third, we are to pray rooted in God's character. I, mean, I think it's an interesting exercise to take our, our prayer list or those things we pray about and measure them up against the nature and character of God and who he is and see how they line up. Do our prayers reflect his values and his priorities and the nature of who he is in terms of his holiness and his justice and his righteousness and his, his desires and his, his kingdom? When you begin to, to push your prayer requests up against God's character, it really helps you to identify your motivation. I mean, if you think about it, why, were, why was uh, Abraham praying so big and audaciously? What was his motivation? You know what his motivation was? Was God's honor. Uh, Abraham was concerned that, God, if, if you don't act in a way that's right and just, I can't teach my kids to be right and just. I can't be the model you want me to be because it will defile you, your reputation among the nations. So, so he was concerned about the honor and the glory of God because he really understood who God was. And that's the thing. When you pray according to God's character, it pushes you deeper into the knowledge of God. What really is he like? I, I think this is the, the, the problem with the, the health, wealth kind of expression of Christianity is it fundamentally misunderstands the nature of God and what's important to him. You know, honestly, folks, your health is not God's top priority. Sorry. I mean, look, you're going to die. I mean, health just affects the timing, not the destination. <laughs> 
right? It's a big deal to us. Well, it's not a big deal to God. I'm sorry. I don't mean to be flippant, but he knows the end. <laughs> and your wealth is even more irrelevant. He, honestly, I don't think he could care less. He, he cares a lot what you do with your wealth. I'm not sure he cares much about how much you have. Right? Amen. <laughs> I didn't hear any. See, we want to pray all this stuff, but we really don't want to measure it up against God's justice and priorities in his kingdom. And, and, you know. <laughs> Who is the God we worship? And what does he really care about? What does he really... When I think about uh, this notion of, of praying in a way that's rooted in God's character, I always think of a tree. Because the truth of a tree is the better the root system, the, the better the leaves and the fruit it produces. The, the better we understand the nature and character of God, the more powerful and effective our prayers will be as long as we keep them rooted in that understanding. Abraham understands that God is righteous and just, and that shapes his prayers, and it shapes him. Last thing, fourth, prayer changes things. Um, it, it doesn't always change them the way we want them to be changed. But prayer changes things. Sometimes I, I think we forget how God's answered prayer, four ways. Sometimes God says, no, never, ain't gonna happen. Sometimes God says, no, not now. Uh, sometimes God says, yes, just the way you wanted. Not very often, but once in a while. And sometimes God says, yes, but not as you expected. Do you know which is the best answer? Yes, but not as you expected. <laughs> Do you ever spend any time thinking about what would really happen in your life if God actually answered all your prayers? It would be an absolute mess. I mean, I look back and I think, God, I'm thinking, well, you didn't listen to me. And that's not true. He listened, he just said no, or wait, or let me handle it a different way. And when he handles it a different way, it fits much better with his character and his plan. So pray big, pray with audacity, pray rooted in God's character, and remember prayer changes things. It really does. God gives us a bit of omnipotence in our prayers. There is a fascinating legend that comes from this story. It's called the legend of the Lamed Vavnik. Uh, Lamed is a letter in the Hebrew alphabet that stands for 30, and Vavnik is another letter that stands for six, and the Lamed Vavnik are the 36. And the legend 
says that um, there are 36 righteous people in the world. And because of their righteousness and their prayers, uh, um, God continues to extend his mercy to our world and keeps from destroying it. Now, the Lam and Vavnik don't know who they are. In fact, if somebody tells you they're one of the Lam and Vavnik, you can be certain they're not. But God is gracious in that every time a Lam and Vavnik dies, God raises up another to pray, to live differently, to live with compassion, so that God can extend his mercy. I often think that God's church is called to be the Lamed Vavnik of the world. That we are called to live righteously, to live with compassion, to live with a, a sense of justice and mercy. And we are called to pray. Not little prayers, but big, audacious Prayers rooted in God's character. Because those kind of prayers change the world. Amen? Let's pray. Father, help us to pray big prayers for our world. Help us to pray with a sense of boldness and help us to know who you are so that we pray in line with your desires and your heart. Use us, Lord, to, to change the world in amazing ways because of our prayers. Help us to be that kind of people and that kind of church. We pray in Christ's name, amen. You know, there's an interesting thing in this story that it's easy to miss. There is the seed of the gospel here. When Abraham says, God, for the sake of the 50 righteous, won't you spare the city? It's the hint of God's grace. Because that's exactly what has happened to us. God has spared us because of a righteous one. Right? Jesus and his righteousness is what spares us and forgives us of our wickedness and our sin. That's an amazing thing to experience his grace. We want to invite you this morning to make sure that that has happened in your life. So we're going to sing together. So if you'd stand. To learn more about Waterstone, please visit waterstonechurch.org.